Our Lord and God is tremendous. Absolutely. Beyond anything we could have ever had dreamt up. And we give him praise. Well, today, I want to remind you, take you back a few decades. Well, first, before I do that, let me remind you. For those of you who think it's a little weird that we still have children's time when children aren't here, remember, we are are doing live broadcast, and uh, our kids who are out there on vacation may be getting to see. And for those of you who don't know, Grace Baptist Church in the Philippines joins us each week. And hello to our friends at Grace Baptist. You are constantly in our prayers. And they have kids. And so we want to make sure that uh, the little ones, wherever they may be, who are connected with us in whatever fashion, can have a sense of what's going on. Well, in the 1990s, there was a popular Saturday Night Live recurring skit. The character was Stuart Smalley, and some of you will remember him. He attempts to console people in their, as they struggle with their issues and dilemmas, even though he himself was quite a mess. But even with all of his problems, the skit closed every week with Smalley looking into a mirror and saying his personal affirmation or mantra, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Well, if you think that the self-help movement is a 90s thing, I want to let you know it's been going on a lot longer than that. And I want to share with you a list of the first self-help books of the modern era. They're listed in an article by Marshall Sinclair, Why the Self-Help Industry is Dominating the U.S. And to begin with, there is uh, Samuel Smiles' book, Self-Help. It was published in 1859. It is considered to be one of the most successful and earliest of self-help books in history. It also gave a name to the genre, and the world of Victorian England and much of the West just swallowed up self-help whole. They got very excited about it. And then you have a French pharmacist, Emile Couet, who was intent on legitimizing the idea of self-help. And in 1920, how's this for a title? He wrote Self-Mastery Through Conscious Auto-Suggestion. It was based on his research with hypnosis. And his book, if you think Smiley invented it or SNL, he said that repeating positive mantras, self-affirmations to yourself would have a positive impact on your unconscious self. And his work was so accepted that it gave a legitimacy to a growing movement of the time of the early 20s, and it was the new thought movement uh, that grew and preached the power of the mind over the body. And then you have Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, 1936. And in that book, he taught readers to become more likable. And while he would never admit this, having read the book, because it was an assignment in a speech class, he was a little bit manipulative. How can you make people like you? 
And in 1938, you have Napoleon Hill's Think and Go Rich. And he offered a guaranteed 13-step method for increasing your income. Uh, President Wilson actually endorsed the book. To this day, Hill and Carnegie's works top the self-help book bestseller list even now. And then in 1952, Norman Vincent Peale gave a, a religious take on self-help book, um, influenced by the idea of new modern thought to some degree, The Power of Positive Thinking. And it was an important event. Now, there is a, these are some of the earliest, but a, an article in the New York Magazine reports that the self-help movement about 2015, 2016, had become, get ready, an $11 billion industry dedicated to telling us how to live our best lives. And it points out that today there are at least 45,000 books in print about self-help, not to mention blogs and web pages and so on. 45,000. And they said when Chicken, when, uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul came out more than 20 years ago, you could find it quickly and easily and you knew what it was about because in that point in time, all the self-help books on the market would probably fill one shelf in a bookseller, bookstore. Today, they argue, and I think it's true, you go into almost any section of a bookstore, including fiction, and self-help has touched it all. People telling us, again, how to live our best lives. Now, $11 billion sounds a lot, but by next year, it is predicted this movement will now be worth $13 billion. $13 billion. Now, you may not like the self-help movement. You may be skeptical. Sinclair was in his article, and he wrote, If you, like me, scoff at the law of attraction or cringe at positive self-talk, the self-help industry has built a genre for you as well. I can't make this up, folks. There is now the anti-self-help self-help. He said, that makes as much sense as taking a shot of tequila to get sober. The anti-self-help, self-help. Now, the majority of these writers do not say your best bet is thinking positive. In fact, they offer these ideas. Be negative. Accept you will always be mediocre. And finally, just simply stop caring about it. And Oliver Berkman, the author of Antidote, and Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, suggests the way you get a rich life is you think about all the downers. You think about all that's bad, all the suffering we endure. And you must not forget that constantly around our head is the ever-present Grim Reaper. Now, my problem with self-help is essentially this. The movement insists that the key to success, happiness, life in general, is found within the self. 
Now, I happen to be one of those people of faith who believe that everything about the human self is tainted by sin. So when I think someone tells me we can take care of our problems by looking inward, by positive affirmations, every day and every way I'm getting better, better, and better, uh, it's a little bit ludicrous. Now, having said that, today I am going to give you the key. The key to a life of meaningful truth, of richness, of just an incredible, rich, amazing life. Today I'm going to talk about the key to joy. The key to joy. Now my secret, my secret is that the key to joy doesn't lie within ourselves innately. Instead, as we're wrapping up our look at the need for awakening, I contend the key to joy is found in the renewing act of God in our lives. As God touches us, moves in us, makes us into what we ought to be, then we begin to understand what joy is. We get a glimpse of it. And we're going to take a look at Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 10 today. Now, for you to fully appreciate Isaiah 35, sometime this week, I would suggest this afternoon, read Isaiah 34. The two chapters go together. And chapter 34 is a word about worldwide judgment and destruction. It is the story of the sword. It is the story of the wilderness. It is the story of pain as God enacts judgment on a world that has flaunted their sin, that has turned away from him. And this passage will become so much richer if you'll do that. Chapter 35 It's the polar opposite. Where 34 talks about judgment and all of that, 35 talks about the truth that God is going to move among his people. So let's take a look. Alan shared already part of it. Let's take a look at Isaiah 35, 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water the haunt of jackals. Where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. 
No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. In this incredibly poetic, beautiful passage, God gave to his people Israel a word of incredible joy that came with the hope that one day they would be delivered. Now, I believe in this mixed-up world that we live in, that Alan alluded to, we, as the body of Christ, need the reassuring joy only God can bring. So what is the key to joy? Well, in this text, we're going to discover several promises, promises of God that will open joy up in our hearts. Now, This passage is not completely fulfilled yet, but I'll address that at the very end. These are promises that God has given his people. And to begin with, we have a promise that God's glory will one day be revealed. That God is going to burst upon the scene in all of his majesty and glory, and all of the world, all of the universe will recognize it. This is a powerful word from God, an unusual word from God. Because in our text, the Lord led Isaiah to do something different than was normally done. Normally, in the word of God, when you find the glory of the Lord spoken about, it's revealed in his historical acts. When he created the world, when he uh, called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, when he established Israel at Mount Sinai, when he brought the redeemed of the Lord home from Babylon, when he called uh, the disciples to Jesus' side so that he may teach and lead them and prepare them to be the leaders of the movement to come, when the church was brought into being. All those acts of God. But here in our text, the Lord pictured an amazing display of his glory in a world being reborn. This is a beautiful passage, folks. He says, all of the destruction that I talked about in the last oracle, I'm going to reverse. And I'm going to do something amazing. And I'm going to do something powerful. I am going to take the worst of the worst that you see in this world, and I'm going to renew it. The desert that is parched, the land that is unyielding, it's all going to be changed. It's going to pump. The, the desert is going to become like Lebanon, famous for its mighty trees. It's going to take on the majesty of Mount Carmel. It's going to take on the beauty of the plain of Sharon. And it's going to be beautiful. Absolutely. The place that only jackals were fit for is going to become a thriving, living, fruitful place. God is going to show the world that he is God by changing it. And folks, I believe this is a beeline move to explain what the Word of God tells us in the New Testament. 
when Paul writes in his epistle that the whole earth is groaning because of sin, waiting for the day when Christ will return and a new world will be made. We're told that the old world will disappear and the new world will be remade. We're told that Jerusalem will come down and it's going to be a glorious thing. Uh, Way back in college, Dr. Donald Potts shared with a class and I was absolutely in awe as I listened to him that the word of God is built around three moments in a garden. At the creation, you have the Garden of Eden when mankind is brought into this world to tend the land and God looks and says, it is very good. And skip ahead centuries when the sin of humanity has become overwhelming. And you find a single solitary individual deep within the Garden of Gethsemane praying unto his Father, if there's any way to take this cup away from me, do so. But nevertheless, what you want is most important. And in that garden, Jesus fully committed himself to the death that was awaiting him the next day. His death for you and me. And then fast forward to whenever it happens. The new Jerusalem is going to descend out of heaven. And there's going to be, it's described a garden that will so far surpass Eden. The trees of life, not just one, the trees of life will line the street made of gold. There will be no evil there. And all of this wrapped up in the idea of garden. And God says, that glory is waiting. Because one day, I'm going to change this world. And every time I think of that, folks, I can't help but think this world is it's in its fallen state? Are you ever just amazed at the sheer beauty of God's creation? And we're looking at it after the fall. I can't even begin to imagine what it's going to be when the Lord of Lords reigns forever and ever. And so, right now, ahead of us lies a point in time when all the universe will declare God's glory. And we look for that day. We long for that day. We want to see sickness and sorrow and deprivation and pain done away with. We are longing for it. And that's our hope. And that's our joy that one day all that is wrong will be made right. That is our hope. And so, right now, let us joyfully pledge our hearts to the glory of God in the living of these days. Let's not wait for heaven to come down and glory for all our soul. Let the glory of God be reflected in our lives and moving in our hearts, in our lives. The Westminster Divines wrote centuries ago, what is the chief purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I say a loud amen to that. That is our purpose. That is our joy. And we can go out into this world with a, a, a certain and wonderful truth that God's glory 
can be reflected in us. Folks, in the book of Acts, you occasionally find people saying, what must I do to be saved? Why would they say that? Because they see the hand of God moving in his people. And God can be glorified in the way we live our lives. If we are renewed, if we are awakened, if we yield ourselves to God's hand and he moves in us, his glory can be foreshadowed in you and me. And what an impact. I'm not saying everybody in the world will start loving us overnight. But I'm saying there will be some who are hungry for something they don't know that are beginning to see the truth. Folks, the glory of God is promised to come. So right now, let's open our hearts and ask God to help us show his glory in our lives. In the living of these days, God, make yourself known. But there's another promise here. And this may not sound as exciting as God's glory being shown, but folks, we have a promise of the possibility of mutual encouragement. You may think, wow, that's exciting, Danny. It really is. It really is if we stop to understand what God was saying. Mutual encouragement. You see, God, the Lord, was giving his people the incredibly important task of encouragement. He tells, strengthen those with feeble hands. Encourage those who are depressed. They're so worn on, they they just can't do anything. Help the terrified, those whose knees are giving way. Help the fearful who just think there's no hope whatever, whatever, because you can tell them God's vengeance is coming. And that vengeance, folks, that may sound like an odd word here, but what God is saying is he will take care of evil. And then he will give recompense. He will pay back every loss that sin and destruction has brought to his people. Because God will save them. And the long and short of it is, my friends, we need each other to fulfill the call of mutual encouragement. I took you through a quick span of history just a moment ago. Let me do it again. God called the patriarchs together, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? To form the nucleus of what will become Israel. And then, hundreds of years later, he takes the Hebrew people out of Egypt meets them on Mount Sinai and covenants with them, and they become Israel. And then after destruction and judgment came, centuries later, God brought the redeemed of his people out of Babylon back home so they could get a fresh start. And then the fullness of time came and Jesus came and surrounded himself with 12 men specifically to guide them and lead them and teach them into what they could become. And then on the day of Pentecost, he created the body of Christ, the church of the living God. Why does God do this? Because, folks, God 
will always have a people. God makes us into a community. Your salvation was never meant, oh boy, I got my ticket punched. I get to go to heaven. We're part of the body. We're part of one another. Because even though God is with us, there are times the strongest a believer needs someone to walk alongside them and remind them of the truth. You're not alone. Your weakness won't last forever. I'm here to help you carry your burden. And you can help carry mine. We need each other. I will tell you the honest truth. Without going into all the details, those of you at Bay Vista who've been with me throughout this journey, I'm telling you if it were not for people like you in my life, I wouldn't be here. God has used the body of Christ in every major moment of pain my life has had to encourage me and help me take another step. My mom epitomized that for me. And every time I say this, people kind of give me a weird look. One of the most wonderful things my mother ever told me, and she told it to me a lot, I love you anyway. And folks, that's not something that's bad. My mom affirmed to me, no matter what happens, my love will be with you. And the body of Christ can tell one another, we love you anyway. And we want to be here. And we want to help you. And we want to strengthen you. Encouragement. So, right now, let us Share with each other the joy that God brings into our lives. Encouraging one another. We enter into someone else's pain. As Paul says to Galatians, we bear each other's burden. And in doing so, we remind each other that the joy of God is real and powerful and can carry you through this time of difficulty. You're not alone. You're loved. And we will stand with you. And folks, when we can do that, when we can encourage each other, such joy starts flooding throughout our lives. Not only ours, but the lives of those we've encouraged and vice versa. You and I have a job to do. To look for those who are falling through the cracks to look for those who've lost their strength, their zeal. And we are to speak into their lives encouragement. Don't give up. God is here. And then another promise that is very similar. We have a promise of the possibility of hope for the hopeless. Again, such a beautiful passage of Scripture. Um, I really had to watch myself with this passage today. And then Charmel picked some incredibly wonderful songs that get me even more pumped up. So we'll blame Charmel if I get too carried away. We have the promise of hope for the hopeless. And God pointed to a time when the most burdensome of trials would be overcome. Hear the words again. 
the most burdensome of trials, then when God has renewed this world, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. Now, there are probably spiritual applications to this promise. Those who are spiritually blind, those who are spiritually uh, lame and cannot move forward, those who spiritually cannot hear, and God will change all of that. But I believe Isaiah was also talking about the reality. Out there in the future, all of the infirmities of life will be dealt with. One of my favorite passages of all time is found in the book of Revelation. It says, when the new Jerusalem comes down and God tabernacles with his people, there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. There will be no more death. There will be no more tears. Because God is going to wipe the tears of sorrow away from us because the former things are gone. And that's our hope. And that keeps us moving forward. This promise that all of the things that tear us apart in this world will one day be dealt with forever and always for God's people. All of it pass away. But that's out there. And we're not there yet. So let the promise of a future without pain, let us understand, that should call us to work toward offering hope to the hurting now. One of the easiest things we can do about the pain in this world is nothing. Just sit back and say, well, I'm glad it's not me. But one of the most godly things we can do is walk along those who are hurting and try to alleviate their pain. Try to give them hope for a a world where pain will no longer exist. We can speak encouragement and we can speak peace. We can speak hope to people who are downcast and who are hurting with such a deep pain. And it has been done magnificently once before. In the seventh chapter of the book of Luke, John the Baptist is in prison. Now keep in mind, he is the one the word of God tells us leapt within his mother's womb for joy when Mary and her child came into their presence. He is the one who saw Jesus walking along the Jordan River and told his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one, upon baptizing Jesus, heard the voice of the Father in heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He is the one who said, This is the one I told you about, whose sandals I'm not worthy to unlace. And now, he's under death sentence. And he sends two of his disciples to Jesus. This man who had more revelation about Jesus than anybody in history at that moment. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the one? 
Or did I mess up? Did I misunderstand? All because Jesus wasn't doing what John expected him to do. And when Jesus sent message back to John, he made reference to our passage of Scripture. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. And in fact, he adds a couple of pretty significant statements. And it also takes into account Isaiah 61, 1. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Here's the new one. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. Boy, man, he's raising the dead. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus showed us the way by pointing to, uh, to John the Baptist what he was doing as Messiah in telling the good news. John the Baptist was able to face his death with hope again. John's fear and doubts were taken away because he knew God was real. So right now, may we joyfully enter into the hurting world with the hope of Christ. And I know that hurts, folks. I know it it hurts to embrace the hurt of this world to help carry the weight, the burdens. But what joy can happen? What joy can happen when we share the truth of Christ and somebody tells us, I thank God for you. Like Paul told the Philippians, I thank God for you. Because your word of hope has given me strength to face the next day. Your word of hope reminding me who Jesus is and what he wants to do is enabling me to press on. And when that happens, folks, it's joy time. Joy. Nothing the world offers comes anywhere close to the joy that can be had between brothers and sisters when they help one another. Do you remember the passage of Scripture that I opened this up with? Our Scripture called to worship, Blessed is God, the Father of all compassion, who comforts us. Why? So we can comfort others the way we have been comforted. That's our calling. And that's our joy. And the last promise I have to share with you today makes every other promise possible. We have a promise of God's continuing grace. We have a promise that God's grace reaches out always to his people. Now, there are two words that are used at the end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10. In verse 9, it is the redeemed. The redeemed, the ga'al is the Hebrew term. And then the ransomed, the padah. The redeemed and ransomed. What's going on with those words? Well, I believe this is referencing something that we really don't completely understand. It's not part of our society. We can read about it in the Bible, 
but it still kind of seems odd to us. You see, folks, the Lord promised to be the kinsman redeemer of his people. The Goel, the one who redeems and the one who ransoms. Now, you can find it in the book of Leviticus, the 25th chapter, and you can find it in the book of Numbers, the 5th chapter. But this is the next of kin who has the right to go and take upon himself the helplessness of his beloved kinsmen if they are captured in war and enslaved, he is one who has the right to go buy them from slavery and set them free. If they are murdered, the kinsman redeemer is the one who has the right to seek justice on their behalf. If his brother's wife dies without child, excuse me, his brother dies and leaves his wife without child, he will take her unto himself so that his brother can have a legacy. That story is in the book of Ruth. And also in the book of Ruth, we find out nobody better mess with the right of the kinsman redeemer. That's why Boaz has to buy the right to redeem Ruth and take her unto himself. And it was a right It wasn't seen as an inalienable duty. It was a right. And so it speaks when God says, the redeemed and the ransomed. He said, I'm going to take care of you. God was expressing that I alone can redeem you. I alone can bring you back. J.L. Alec Motier says this passage speaks to the mighty God in the place of the helpless, paying their price. Now, why would God redeem Israel? Was it because they were a great covenant people who always did what they were told? No. You've read the Old Testament enough, and you've heard it from this pulpit enough to know, no, Israel didn't do a very good job. Why did he bring the remnant back from Babylon? Because they had somehow earned the right to come home? No. He did it because of their gra- his grace for them, his love for them. And the reality is, for God's people, for us today, our God and King floods our lives with grace that defies our imagination. This is one of the reasons the world doesn't like grace. It doesn't want to admit Self-help really doesn't work. It doesn't want to admit that we can't fix the problems of this world. That we can somehow save ourselves. But God gives us what we do not deserve. When he saved you, when the Lord Jesus Christ came into your life, you confessed him as Lord and Savior. When he offers comfort, And the peace that passes understanding when he brings into your life an abundant life. All of that is because of grace. All of that is God giving us more than we could deserve. And by the way, grace always goes hand in hand with mercy. God holding back what we do deserve. And I don't want what I deserve. 
Give me grace. And that is our joy. When we think about all the times God has moved to bring us back to himself, it is grace. And it's better than anything we could have dreamed up. That is God. That is what he's doing. And folks, right now, we have a conundrum. Will we joyfully pledge our hearts to share the amazing grace of God? Throughout this message, when it comes to application, I said, let's do this. I'm asking, will we do this? You see, for a lot of decades now, the body of Christ in the West has taken the grace of God and hoarded it for ourselves. This doesn't bring me pleasure. But time after time, as people have spoken their hearts and their reality, it has been revealed the vast majority of Christians in our country, in the West as a whole, the vast majority never share their faith with someone who doesn't know the Lord. We'll talk about Jesus here, and we'll sing songs of Jesus here. When you go to lunch after service, you may say grace at the beginning of your meal. You may talk about God in your prayer groups. But the vast majority of us will not talk to our next door neighbor. And that, folks, is our call. We need to be telling the story of God's grace. We need to be entering into people's lives, helping them see that there is more. And so I have a question. Yes, I believe we need to pledge our hearts to share this amazing grace. But are we going to? And I can think of no better barometer of saying an awakening of God is moving in our land. When we are so grateful for what God has done, we can't help ourselves but tell. But tell. Now, having looked at all of these promises, we need to recognize something. John Golden Gay has pointed out, he's talking about Isaiah 35, this lyrical picture of God's salvation looks beyond any concrete historical experience. As it stands, chapter 35 has no more been realized than chapter 34, and it thus remains as a promise regarding God's ultimate purpose. I think Alan hit the nail on the head. I think this is a picture of what will happen ultimately for God's people when the great and terrible Lord, day of the Lord comes. So it has not been completely fulfilled. But please notice the word completely. There are a lot of passages of Scripture. Isaiah, when Isaiah says to ask, uh, test the Lord and see if he's true, and the king says, oh, I won't. He goes, okay, I'll give you a test. I'll give you an example a young woman is about to give birth, and before that child is weaned. I believe that passage was fulfilled in John's, and excuse me, in Isaiah's life. But we know its ultimate fulfillment 
It's not just in the young woman giving birth, but a virgin giving birth to our Lord and Savior. This passage is the same thing. It isn't completely fulfilled, but it will be. And Golden Gate says, in our own experience, when we see God replacing desolation by fruitfulness, fear by hope, silence by shouting, a desert by pool, and when we see believing communities finding their way back to God and back to the place of God's purpose for them, we see this vision finding an interim fulfillment. And this is what God wants to do in our lives. The ultimate fulfillment of this passage is somewhere out there ahead of us. But as we yield ourselves to the renewing, awakening move of God in our lives, we can see a partial fulfillment. These promises fulfilled in our life where the glory of God is going to be revealed, where we can mutually encourage one each other and and help each other along the way, when we can offer hope to the hopeless, And we can celebrate that every day of our life is grace. When I wake up in the morning, it is a gift of God's grace. When I am filled with his love and mercy, it is a gift of God's grace. So let's seek the God's awakening with all that we are. Let us ask God to move in our lives yielding ourselves to him and to his promises. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And you're going to have an opportunity, folks, to start seeing joy in an amazing way as we open ourselves to what God is wanting to do in our midst. A joy that isn't limited to what happens in worship like I shared with you a couple of weeks ago. A joy that fills every moment of our lives. But for that joy to be as powerfully real as it can be, we need to give ourselves as fully as we know how to the God who saved us. And so today I'm asking you, will you commit yourself to looking for the promises of God in your life and then sharing as he gives them. I'm asking you, will you ask the Lord, renew me now?